0: Chapter 26 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 26. It was still necessary to wait twenty-four hours after receiving the letter. Mateus declared he would rather cut off his hand than ask to see the prince after midnight. At breakfast the next morning, he showed himself a little more expansive, even than the day before, and Consuela thought she perceived that the imprisonment of the chevalier had embittered him against the prince so far as to give him quite a strong inclination to be indiscreet for the first time in his life. Still, when she had made him talk for more than an hour, she remarked that she was no further advanced than before. Whether he pretended simplicity in order to study the thoughts and feelings of Consuelo, or whether he really knew nothing of the existence of the Invisibles and the part his master took in their acts— The fact was that Consuelo found herself bewildered in a strange confusion of contradictory notions. In all that referred to the social position of the prince, Mateus entrenched himself behind the impossibility of forgetting the rigorous silence which had been imposed upon him. He shrugged his shoulders, it is true, when speaking of that strange injunction— He confessed that he did not comprehend the necessity of wearing a mask in order to communicate with the persons who, at more or less remote intervals and for more or less long periods, succeeded each other in the pavilion. He could not help saying that his master had some inexplicable caprices and was employed about incomprehensible matters. But all curiosity, as well as all indiscretion, was paralyzed in him by the fear of terrible punishments, respecting the nature of which he did not explain himself. In fine, Consuelo learnt nothing, except that some singular things took place at the chateau, that they hardly slept there at night, that all the domestics had seen spirits." and that Matthias himself, who declared that he was brave and devoid of prejudice, had often met during winter, in the park, at times when the prince was absent and the chateau deserted, figures which made him shudder, which had entered he knew not how, and departed in the same manner. All this threw no new light upon Consuelo's situation. She was obliged to resign herself and to wait until evening to send this new petition. Whatever may be the consequences to myself, I earnestly and humbly asked to appear before the tribunal of the invisibles. The day seemed to her mortally long. She endeavored to master her impatience and anxiety by singing all that she had composed in prison, respecting the sorrows and enways of solitude. And she ended this rehearsal at nightfall with the sublime air of El Marina in the Rinaldo of Handel, Lascio Pianga, Lodura la Sorte, e Cio La Levetta. Hardly had she finished when a violin of extraordinary vibration repeated on the outside the admirable strain she had just uttered, with an expression as profound and as sad as her own. Consuelo ran to the window, but could see no one, and the music was lost in the distance. It seemed to her that such an instrument and such remarkable playing could belong only to Count Albert, but she soon drove away this thought as forming part of the series of painful illusions, dangerous to her reason, from which she had already suffered so much. She had never heard Albert play a single passage of modern music, and none but a diseased mind could persist in evoking his specter every time the sound of a violin was heard. Nevertheless, this emotion troubled Consuelo and cast her into such sad and absorbing reveries that not until nine o'clock in the evening did she remark that Mateus had brought her neither dinner nor supper and that she was fasting since the morning. This circumstance made her fear that Mateus— like the chevalier, had fallen a victim to the interest he had shown for her. Doubtless the walls had eyes and ears. Perhaps Mateus had said too much. He had murmured a little about the disappearance of Liberani. This was probably enough to cause him to share his fate. This new anxiety prevented Consuelo from feeling the discomfort of hunger. Still the evening advanced. Mateus did not appear. She ventured to ring. No one came. She experienced great weakness, and especially great consternation. Leaning upon the sill of her window, her head resting on her hands, she was recalling in her brain, already somewhat troubled by the sufferings of inanition, the strange events of her life, and asking herself if this was the remembrance of a reality or of a long dream when a hand cold as marble was placed upon her head, and a deep bass voice uttered these words, Your request is granted. Follow me. Consuelo, who had not yet thought of lighting her apartment, but who had hitherto clearly distinguished objects in the twilight, tried to look at the person who spoke to her. She suddenly found herself in darkness as thick as if the atmosphere had become compact in the starry sky, a vault of lead. She raised her hand to her forehead, deprived of air, and recognized a hood at once light and impenetrable, like that which Caligastro had once thrown over her head without her feeling it. Drawn by an invisible hand, she descended the staircase of the pavilion but she soon perceived that it had more steps than she remembered and that it entered subterranean passages in which she walked more than half an hour. Fatigue, hunger, emotion, and an overpowering heat slackened her steps more and more. And ready to swoon every instant, she was tempted to ask for a respite. But a certain pride which made her fear the appearance of falling back from her resolution impelled her to struggle courageously. At last she reached the end of her journey and was placed upon a seat. She heard at this moment an ominous sound, like that of a tam-tam, slowly strike the midnight hour, and at the twelfth stroke the hood was lifted from her brow, bathed in moisture. She was at first dazzled by the brightness of lights, which, arranged upon the same spot in front of her, formed a large flaming cross upon the wall. When her eyes could bear this transition, she saw that she was in a vast hall of Gothic style, the vaulted ceiling of which, divided into elliptic arches, resembled that of a deep dungeon or of a subterranean chapel. At the extremity of this chamber, the aspect and illumination of which were really ominous, she distinguished seven persons enveloped in red cloaks their faces covered with masks of a livid white, which made them resemble corpses. They were seated behind a long table of black marble. In front of the table, and on a lower platform, an eighth specter, dressed in black with a white mask, was also seated. On each side of the lateral walls about twenty men, in black masks and cloaks, were arranged in profound silence. Consuelo turned and saw behind her other black phantoms. At each door there were two standing, each with a long shining sword in his hand. Under other circumstances, Consuelo would perhaps have said to herself that all this gloomy ceremonial was but a play, one of those trials of which she had heard at Berlin respecting the Freemason lodges. But besides that, the Freemasons did not constitute themselves a tribunal, or claim the right of causing uninitiated persons to appear in their secret assemblies. She was disposed, from all that had preceded this scene, to find it serious, even terrifying. She perceived that she trembled visibly, and without the five minutes of profound silence in which the assembly remained, She would not have had strength to recover herself and to prepare to answer. At last, the eighth judge rose and made a sign to the two introducers, who stood, sword in hand, on the right and left of Consuelo, to lead her to the foot of the tribunal, where she remained standing in a somewhat forced attitude of calmness and courage. Who are you, and what is your request? said the man in black without rising. Consuelo was for some moments speechless. Finally, she took courage and replied, I am Consuelo, a cantatrice by profession called the Zingarella and the Porporina. Have you no other name? resumed the interrogator. Consuelo hesitated, then she said, I could claim another, but I have pledged myself on my honor never to do so. Do you hope, then, to conceal anything from this tribunal? Do you think that you are, before common judges, chosen to decide upon common matters in the name of a stupid and blind law? Why do you come here if you expect to impose upon us by vain evasions? Name yourself. Make yourself known for what you are or retire. You who know what I am doubtless also know that my silence is a duty, and you will encourage me to persist in it. One of the red cloaks leaned forward, made a sign to one of the black cloaks, and in an instant all the latter left the hall, excepting the examiner, who remained in his place and resumed in these words. Countess de Rudolstadt, now that the examination becomes secret, and you are alone in the presence of your judges, will you deny that you are legitimately married to the Count Albert Podobrad? called the Rudelstadt, by the pretensions of his family? Before replying to that question, said Consuelo with firmness, I request to know what authority controls me here and what law obliges me to recognize it. What law, then, do you pretend to invoke? Is it a divine or human law? The social law still places you under the absolute control of Frederick II, king of Prussia, "'Elector of Brandenburg, from whose territory we have carried you off "'in order to rescue you from an indefinite captivity, "'and from misfortune still more horrible, as you know. "'I know,' said Consuelo, bending her knee, "'that an eternal gratitude binds me to you. "'I therefore pretend to invoke only the divine law, "'and I beseech you to define to me that of gratitude.' Does it command me to bless you and to devote myself to you from the bottom of my heart? I accept it, but if it prescribes to me to disobey for the sake of pleasing you, the dictates of my conscience ought I not to refuse? Be yourselves the judges. May you have strength to think and act in the world as you speak, but the circumstances which place you here before us are removed from all common reasoning. We are above all human law, as you may have seen from our power. We are equally above all human considerations, prejudices of fortune, of rank, and of birth, scruples and niceties of position, fear of opinion, even respect for engagements contracted with the ideas and persons of the world. Nothing of all this has any meaning for us or value in our eyes, When, assembled far from the eyes of men and armed with the sword of the justice of God, we weigh in the hollow of our hand the trifles of your frivolous and timid existence. Explain yourself, therefore, without evasion, before us who are the support, the family and the living law of every free being. We cannot listen to you unless we know in what quality you appear here. Is it the Zingarella Consuelo, or is it the Countess de Rudelstadt that invokes us? The Countess de Rudelstadt, having renounced all her rights in society, has none to claim here. The Zingarella Consuelo. Stop and weigh the words you have just uttered. If your husband were alive, would you have the right to withdraw your faith, to abjure his name, to reject his fortune? In a word, "'to become again the Zingarella Consuelo "'in order to gratify the childish and senseless pride "'of his family and caste? "'No, certainly. "'And do you think that death has forever broken your ties? "'Do you owe neither respect nor love nor fidelity "'to the memory of Albert?' "'Consuelo blushed and was troubled, "'then again became pale.' The idea that they were about, like Hagliostro and the Count of St. Germain, to speak to her of the possible resurrection of Albert and even to show her an apparition, filled her with such terror that she could not answer. Wife of Albert, Podobrad, resumed the examiner, your silence condemns you. Albert is entirely dead to you, and your marriage is in your eyes only an incident of your adventurous life without any consequence, without any obligation for the future. Singara, you may retire. We were interested in your fate only on account of your connection with the most excellent of men. You are not worthy of our love, for you were not worthy of his. We do not regret having restored you to liberty, for every reparation of the evils inflicted by despotism is a duty and delight to us but our protection will go no further. Tomorrow, you will leave the asylum we had granted you in the hope that you would issue from it purified and sanctified. You will return to the world, to the chimera of glory, to the intoxication of vain passions. May God have pity upon you. We abandon you without recourse. Consuelo remained for some moments overpowered by this sentence. A few days earlier she would not have received it without appeal, but the words, vain passions, which had been uttered, brought before her eyes at this instant the senseless love she had conceived for the unknown, and which she had cherished in her heart, almost without examination and without a struggle. She was humiliated in her own eyes, and the decision of the Invisibles appeared to her just in certain respects. The austerity of their language inspired her with respect, mingled with terror, and she no longer thought of rebelling against the right they claimed of judging and condemning her as a person subject to their authority. It is very rare, whatever may be our natural pride or the blamelessness of our life, that we do not feel the ascendancy of a serious word which unexpectedly accuses us and that instead of discussing with it, we do not examine ourselves to see before all if we do not deserve the blame. Consuelo did not feel herself above all reproach, and the solemnity displayed around her rendered her position singularly painful. Still, she recalled to her mind that she had not asked to appear before this tribunal without being prepared and resigned to its rigor. She had come resolved to submit to admonitions, to any punishment even if necessary, provided the chevalier were exculpated or pardoned. Laying aside, therefore, all self-love, she accepted the reproaches without bitterness and for some moments meditated a reply. "'It is possible that I deserve this severe malediction,' said she at last. "'I am far from being satisfied with myself.' "'but on coming here I had formed an idea of the invisibles "'which I wished to tell you. "'The little I had learnt of you from public rumor "'and the benefit of the liberty which I received from you "'had led me to think that you were men as perfect in virtue "'as you were powerful in society. "'If you are such, as I am still glad to believe, whence comes it that you repulse me so suddenly "'without having indicated to me the path I must follow?' "'in order to escape from error "'and to become worthy of your protection. "'I know that for the sake of Albert de Rudelstadt, "'the most excellent of men, as you have rightly named him, "'his widow deserves some interest. "'But were I not the wife of Albert, "'or even were I always unworthy of being so, "'the Zingara Consuelo, the girl without name, "'without family and without country, "'has not she also?' some right to your paternal care? Suppose that I am a great sinner. Are you not like the kingdom of heaven, in which the conversion of one curse causes more joy than the perseverance of a hundred elect? In fine, if the law which assembles and inspires you be a divine law, you are wanting to it in repelling me. You have undertaken, you say, to purify and sanctify me. Try to raise my soul to the height of your own. I am ignorant and not rebellious. Prove to me that you are holy by showing yourselves patient and merciful, and I will accept you as my masters and models. There was a moment of silence. The examiner turned towards the judges and they seemed to consult together. At last one of them spoke and said, Consuelo, you presented yourself here with pride. Why are you not willing to retire in the same manner? We had the right to blame you because you came here to question us. We have no right to bind your conscience and take possession of your life unless you voluntarily and freely abandon to us both the one and the other. Can we ask of you this sacrifice? You do not know us. This tribunal, the holiness of which you invoke, is perhaps the most perverse, or at least the most audacious that has ever acted in darkness, against the principles which govern the world. What do you know of it? And if we had to reveal to you the profound science of an entirely new virtue, would you have the courage to devote yourself to so long and so arduous a study before knowing the object? Can we ourselves feel confidence in the persevering faith of a neophyte, so badly prepared as you are? We should perhaps have important secrets to confide to you, and we could find a guarantee only in your generous instincts. We know enough of them to believe in your discretion, but we have no need of discreet confidants. We do not want for such. We require, to fulfill the law of God, fervent disciples, free from all prejudices, from all selfishness, from all frivolous passions, from all worldly habits. Descend into yourself. Can you make all these sacrifices for us? Can you model your actions and guide your life upon the instincts which you feel and upon the principles which we would give you to develop them? Woman, artist, child, would you dare reply that you can associate yourself with serious men to labor at the work of the ages? All that you say is very serious in truth, replied Consuelo. And I hardly understand it. Will you give me time to reflect upon it? Do not drive me from your bosom without having interrogated my heart. I know not if it be worthy of the light which you can shed upon it. But what sincere soul is unworthy of the truth? How can I be useful to you? I am terrified at my impotence. Woman and artist, that is to say, child. But to protect me as you have done. You must have foreseen something in me, and I, something tells me that I ought not to leave you without having attempted to prove my gratitude. Do not banish me. Try to instruct me. We grant you eight days more for reflection, said the judge in a red robe, who had already spoken, but you must first pledge your honor not to make the least attempt to know where you are, or who are the persons whom you see here. You must also pledge yourself not to leave the enclosure reserved for your walks, even should you see the doors open and the specters of your dearest friends beckoning to you. You must not address any questions to the people who wait upon you, nor to anyone who may clandestinely obtain admittance to you. That shall never happen, replied Consuelo earnestly. I pledge myself, if you wish, never to receive anyone without your consent. And in return, I humbly ask of you the favor. You have no favor to ask of us, no conditions to propose. All the requirements of your soul and body have been provided for during the time you have to pass here. If you regret any relative, any friend, any domestic, you are free to depart. Solitude, or a society regulated as we determine, will be your lot with us. I ask nothing for myself, but I have been told that one of your friends, one of your disciples or servants, for I am ignorant of the rank you may hold among you, was subjected to a severe punishment on my account. I am ready to accuse myself of the faults imputed to him, and it was for this purpose that I requested to appear before you. Is it a sincere and detailed confession which you offer to make to us, if necessary for his acquittal? though it would be a strange moral torture for a woman to confess herself aloud before eight men. Spare yourself that humiliation. We should have no guarantee of your sincerity, and, besides, we have not as yet any right over you. What you said, what you did in our sense, enters for us into your past. But reflect that from this instant it is our prerogative to fathom the most secret depths of your soul. It is for you to keep that soul pure enough to be always ready to unveil it before us without suffering and without shame. Your generosity is delicate and paternal, but this refers not to me alone. Another expiates my faults. Ought I not to justify him? That is not your province. If there be anyone to blame among us, he will exculpate himself, not by vain excuses and rash allegations, by acts of courage, of devotedness, and of virtue. If his soul has faltered, we will raise it up and help him to conquer himself. You speak of severe punishment. We inflict only moral punishments. That man, whoever he may be, is our equal, our friend, our brother. There are among us neither masters, nor servants, nor subjects, nor princes. False reports have doubtless misled you go in peace and sin not. At this last word the examiner rang a bell. The two men in black, masked and armed, entered, and replacing the hood upon Consuelo's head, they reconducted her to the pavilion by the same subterranean windings through which he had passed on leaving it. End of chapter twenty-six